Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 25. The twenty-fourth talk in a series on the book of Hebrews was presented by Jack Crabtree on February 7, 2016 at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2016. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. We're in chapter 7 of Hebrews, and we've already sort of been oriented to this next section, so I'm going to just jump in line by line, paragraph by paragraph here. We're in 7.11, paragraph 34 on my translation, if you're following on my translation, which I will be reading from, but otherwise we're chapter 7, verse 11. And I'm going to take it a paragraph at a time here. So then, if the fulfillment of its purpose was attained by the Levitical priesthood, now the people were made subject to the law on the basis of it, why is there yet the need for another priest to arise who is in accord with the order of Melchizedek? and not said to be in accord with the order of Aaron. Now, when the priesthood is changed of necessity, or maybe better would be as a matter of course, there will also be a change of covenant. Okay, We talked a little bit last week about what I translated there, if the fulfillment of its purpose was attained. It's literally, if teleosis came by the Levitical priesthood, or was attained by the Levitical priesthood, why is there yet the need for another priest to arise in accord with the order of Melchizedek? So Paul's asking this rhetorical question, if the Mosaic covenant worked, if under the Mosaic covenant you could bring your animal offerings to the priest and he would take the blood from the animal and the flesh from the animal and do what you were supposed to do with it, and you could walk away from there, a person who was going to, who had secured divine mercy because of your offering, if that's the way it worked, why does David in the Psalm 110 have God speaking to the Messiah saying, I have sworn, I will not change my mind, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Paul's asking the question, why would God in his purposes assign a priestly role to the Messiah after the fact, after the Mosaic Covenant, to function as a priest if everything was just hunky-dory back here under the Mosaic Covenant. If that was working, if that was good enough, if that was effective, then why do you need this other thing? And notice he ends the paragraph, now when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there will also be a change of covenant. What he's concluding from this is, do you understand the implications of Psalm 110? Psalm 110 makes no sense unless God has in mind establishing a very new and different kind of covenant other than the Mosaic Covenant. And that's what the priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, is going to serve the terms of this new and different covenant, not the terms of the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant. It's a very simple point, very straightforward point, but a very profound point. Now, I talked last week, but I'll remind you about what he means by if teleosis was attained 
by the Levitical priesthood. What is this teleosis? Teleosis is the state of having some intended purpose fulfilled. If an intended purpose is achieved, then you have attained teleosis. Most of your English translations translate that perfection. Perfection is not a very helpful translation of this in this context. It's even downright misleading, I think. We're not dealing with perfection in any sense that would resonate with us. What we're dealing with is the sacrifices achieving their purpose. If they do achieve their purpose, then teleosis has been achieved. If they don't achieve their purposes, then it has not been achieved. Teleosis has not been achieved. So when he says, if teleosis came through the Levitical priesthood, what does he mean? Well, if the purpose for offering offerings was actually attained by those animals' sacrifices, then why do we have another priest coming? So granted it's in a rhetorical statement here, but here is a statement that clearly implies something that runs contrary to something I believed all my life. Paul is saying the Mosaic Covenant, the offerings, the animal offerings in the Mosaic Covenant didn't work. They didn't get forgiveness. They didn't attain mercy. That's not how many people understand it. For a long time, I thought, well, in the Mosaic Covenant, you offered animal offerings and you got forgiveness and mercy through animal offerings. And then along come Jesus and the rules change. And now God needs more cash value in the offering that you offer than he used to. And now we need the offering of Jesus. But back then, the offering of the animal sacrifices was good enough. But things have changed now, inflation and all that. No, that's not the case. Paul is saying they don't work. They never did work. They never have worked. They were never intended to work. The animal offerings were playing an entirely different role. They weren't actually bringing teleosis. They weren't actually achieving the securing and attainment of divine mercy from God. They didn't do that. We're going to see other statements he makes that have the same implication, but this is the first really clear Although implicit, it's pretty clear that his question doesn't make any sense, if that's not what he's saying. Now, the people were made subject to the law on the basis of it, on the basis of the Levitical priesthood, right? So under the Mosaic Covenant, there was one and only one way to deal with God, and that was through the appointed priests from the tribe of Levi. So the Mosaic Covenant specified that the priests who are going to intercede for you are going to come from the Levitical But why did God go outside of the tribe of Levi and appoint somebody entirely different to function as priest if the Levitical priest acting in accordance with the Mosaic Covenant was working? That's his question. So obviously it wasn't working, and obviously, therefore, God had in mind an entirely different covenant. Now, this is an important issue. We're not going to see how important it is until we get to chapter 8. But just a a heads up where we're going. Because the question, he's going to say at the end of chapter 8, where there is a new covenant, the old one is becoming obsolete. Well, that's a very important statement about Paul's attitude toward what we call the law, toward the Mosaic Covenant. What is his attitude toward the Mosaic Covenant? Well, there's something about the Mosaic Covenant that he says is becoming obsolete. He clearly thinks that there's a new covenant that replaces the old covenant. 
But here's the question. Is it a whole new covenant replaces a whole old covenant? Does everything in the Mosaic covenant go away? And that gets replaced by a completely new and different covenant? That, too, is a very popular teaching among certain modern Christians. That in the Old Testament, we had the Mosaic Covenant. Jesus came along, and he established the law of love, the covenant of love. Now the only thing that matters is that we be loving in the way that Jesus taught us to be loving. And that completely eclipses and replaces and blocks out and abolishes anything that you find in the Mosaic Covenant. Is that what Paul's saying here? I'm going to argue that that's not what Paul's saying here. Paul is focused on a very, very specific, narrow portion of the Mosaic Covenant in everything that he's saying here. The only thing he's concerned about here are the offerings offered by priests in order to deal with the sin of the people of Israel. I sin, I disobey God, I become aware of my unworthiness, my depravity, my guilt, and so on. The Mosaic Covenant prescribes what I need to do. I need to bring a sin offering or a guilt offering on the one hand, or I need to wait anxiously for the Day of Atonement on the other hand. But I'm looking for the offerings that God has said to offer to be the way that my intercessor, the priest, is going to appeal to God to be merciful to me and on the Day of Atonement and to the whole nation. But we're looking to God to be merciful to us on the basis of these offerings that we're offering up to God. Well, what Paul has in mind throughout this chapter, the next chapter, chapter 9, all the way through chapter 10, is he's narrowly focused on the system of offerings, and really, in particular, the system of propitiatory offerings. You have other offerings that you can give. You can give thank offerings when you're feeling grateful. You have an offering that you can offer God to express your thanks. You have various ways of praising God through offerings. But propitiatory offerings are offerings that you are offering up to God because you know that you are unworthy of God and you are in need of mercy. And by offering the offering, you are basically asking God to be merciful to you. It's that kind of offering that is in the narrow focus of Paul's concern here. So when he talks about there being an old way replaced by a new way. We're going to see in a number of different ways here. What he has in mind is there was a certain priest who offered a certain kind of offering under the Mosaic Covenant to deal with your sins. All that's going to change because what God is going to do instead is send his Messiah to play a priestly role and to offer a completely different kind of offering to deal with your sins. Now that much is commonplace. All of us understand that. All of us know that. All of us have grown up with that. All of us believe that. But that's explicitly and expressly what Paul is trying to argue for in these chapters here, is simply the all-sufficiency of Jesus dealing with sin on our behalf and the complete lack of effectiveness of the Mosaic Covenants dealing with sins on our behalf. That's what he's concerned with here. So we can't take his argument here and extrapolate from that to say Paul thinks the Mosaic Covenant has no relevance any longer. It's not what he's saying. 
And we'll flesh that out more when we look at Isaiah and look at chapter 8 of Hebrews where he quotes the Isaiah passage. Okay, now when the priesthood is changed, I have of necessity, but I'd like to change that. It's as a matter of course, there will also be a change of covenant. His point is not the false fallacious point that if you change a priest, you have to change the covenant, just the rules of the universe or something like that. That's not his point. This is not some kind of universal absolute principle that a new priest requires a new covenant. Rather, what he's saying is, since we have in Psalm 110 the promise of an entirely different kind of priest in the part of the Messiah, given the realities of the Mosaic covenant and given the realities of who the Messiah is, as a matter of course, that can only work out and can only be true if we have a new and different covenant. That's the point that he's making. Okay, let me pause there. Anything else in that paragraph that you want to talk about that I haven't touched on? So, Jack, I'm still trying to get in my head. Obviously, if you were an Old Testament Jew and you were offering these propitiatory offerings correctly with the correct heart, you would internalize that that was what was necessary for me to receive mercy before God. That being the animal offerings that you're... Yeah, it seems like this is what God has asked me to do with a correct heart and everything. So, therefore, come judgment day, I would be receiving mercy, a right standing before God. But I think by going to the New Testament, and as Christ being the perfect sacrifice, that that applied not only to people of the New Testament, but also to the ones in the Old Testament, even though that they weren't aware of it. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. It's critical that we make a distinction between the basis upon which God grants the worshiper mercy and the condition upon which he will be granted mercy. Those are different. So is it possible for a worshiper in the time of Moses to receive mercy? Absolutely. When does it happen? When he offers animal offerings. So the condition for the person under the Mosaic Covenant is the obedient offering of the offerings that he offers up to God, asking God for mercy. But although by meeting that condition, he's going to be granted mercy, it's not the animal offerings that are the basis for him being granted mercy. They're not doing nothing. It's because Jesus, who is the true high priest, and the true effective intercessor for them is going to intercede for them at the judgment seat. Why? Because they're people of God, because they belong to him. And how do we know they belong to him? Well, look at their heart. They had a broken and contrite heart, and out of that broken and contrite heart, they did the only thing they knew to do and were instructed to do at that time under the Mosaic Covenant. So they were displaying their contrition, And they were displaying their faith and their trust in God through their obedience. But it's not those offerings that did anything to make God grant them mercy. God could care less about burning animal flesh. It's no big deal to him. But he does care about the righteousness, the sinlessness of his beloved son that he does care about. And that becomes the basis for any human being any time throughout all of history, throughout all of world history, ever receiving mercy from God is they have Jesus as their intercessor, as their advocate. 
I think what makes it hard to grasp a lot of times is that Christ came after the Old Testament, but it still affected everybody in the Old Testament. Well, we're going to see several places here coming up that are strongly going to suggest that Paul's view is that, as I have alluded to before, is that salvation for all of us is in the future. And the issue is not, am I saved now? Because there's no such thing really as being saved now. I'm going to be saved at the judgment seat at the time that counts when there's this watershed event in history. I'm either going to enter into life or I'm going to go to death and destruction. And when that moment, when that fork in the road of my life comes, am I going to have an intercessor there who's going to be able to effectively appeal to God and say, Father, I want Jack in my kingdom. Please grant mercy to him. And so it's not like it has to be retroactive, the death of Jesus. It's forward-looking for all of us. All of us are going to be saved in the future. Is that but Christ is the intercessory for, for all of us. For all of us. At, and he will, intercede, he will intercede for us at the end. He's going to say at the completion here in a sentence or two, in a, in a little bit here. That's just the point I was going to make, that it's all in the future. That's yeah, exactly. So at the time Paul is writing, if the current Levitical priests functioning in the temple came to him and said, so now what does that mean for us? If anything, what would Paul have said? Okay, great question. What's really interesting to me, I have never heard anyone, you don't see it at all in the New Testament. You don't see a controversy in the New Testament, should we or should we not take offerings to the temple? It's astonishing to me that that was not a controversy in many respects. That's astonishing to me. And I don't know which way to go in answering that. One possible answer is, well, You've been offering offerings all of your life. Of course you're going to offer offerings at the temple. It's not a big deal. Or the other obvious answer is, duh, Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Why would I be offering anything else? And I don't know which way the first generation of believers went. I think they could have gone either way because Paul's point is not that there's something completely and totally and absolutely illegitimate about obeying the Mosaic Covenant in offering the animal offerings, that's not his point. His point is, it doesn't do any good. It's not getting you what you want. That's not the basis for God granting you mercy. So I could see Paul going either way there. On the one hand, he could say, well, you're a Levi, you got a job, you're on next week, go to it. Or he could say, now that you are a believer, don't you understand that there is no need to offer those offerings any longer, so cut it out. And you could see that both could be valid, but the one thing that absolutely has to be the case is that you don't get Jesus if you don't understand that he and he alone offered the one and only offering that becomes the basis upon which all of mankind will receive mercy. There ain't no other way that mercy is ever given to anybody. Now, I think Paul would say, as long as you're clear about that, then do whichever you want. So were the animal offerings a type? No. In fact, when we get to chapter 10, I think, he, Paul says a really, really interesting thing. He says they are not the same image of the good things to come. 
And the good things to come in that context is the offering of Jesus and the priesthood of Jesus. That what was going on in the temple was not an image of the things to come. It was not the same. It wasn't like what was to come. It was only a shadow, he calls it. So think of the difference between if a bright light is shining and casting a shadow of me on the wall. Think of the difference between a shadow of Jack and a photograph of Jack. A photograph of Jack captures my likeness. It's the same. It's, it reflects in some kind of detail and accurately and faithfully what it is that I look like. Shadow doesn't. A shadow is still related to me. It very generally and roughly captures the outline of who I am, but it's very, very rough. And when I was studying that sentence, it dawned on me again that's so different than I have always looked at the Old Testament sacrifices. I thought Jesus' sacrifice was just like the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, only better, right? His blood was better, his flesh was better, it was a better offering somehow, but it was functionally equivalent to the offerings that were being offered in the Mosaic Covenant. I think that's exactly what Paul is denying in that sentence that we'll get to. He's saying, oh, no, 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 no. What's going on with Jesus is very, very different than what was going on when they were offering offerings in the, under the Mosaic Covenant. It's not the same thing. It's only very roughly the same in that it's a, an appeal to God for mercy. Okay, in that way it's the same. But in all other respects, there's a lot of dissimilarities between the offering of Jesus and the offering of animals. So, for example, as we see in this context, and it'll become, we'll get more and more hints to this effect, notice how relatively uninterested Paul is in Jesus' offering and how incredibly interested he is in his priesthood. Why is this a better hope that we have? Not because he offered a better offering. He's going to argue that it is a better offering later, but But in this section, he doesn't mention the offering at all. Why is it a better covenant with better promises and we have a better hope? Because we have a better priest. Well, that's really interesting because in my older way of thinking about this, it was, no, absolutely, it was because he was a better offering. He was doing exactly the same thing the animals were doing when they got offered, only better. But what's behind what Paul is saying is, why is this better? Because in Jesus, we have an intercessor who offered himself on our behalf. What animal ever played that role? No animal ever interceded for any worshiper. No animal was both offering and priest at the same time. Do you see what I'm talking about? This is not an image of this. This is only very, very roughly and generally playing a similar role to this. But you can't extrapolate from the animal offerings to understand what Jesus was doing dying on the cross. He was not just a better animal offering being offered up to God on the cross. See what I'm saying? Would you be saying, though, that the priest is the offering? In Jesus' case, yes. In fact, Paul will say that explicitly here in a little bit. Okay, let's go on to the next paragraph. Now, the one about whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has attended at the altar. Now, to start with, the one about whom these are spoken, these things are spoken, we're not talking about Jesus here. He will eventually 
tell you that the one we're talking about is Jesus, but he's not there in the argument yet. He's still talking about Psalm 110. In Psalm 110, there is one in Psalm 110 about whom it is said, God says to him, I swear I will not change my mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Who's the you? The Messiah. It's the Messiah because we can establish from a variety of evidences that it's a messianic psalm, that the one from the very beginning of the psalm in view is the Messiah. So who's the one spoken about? The Messiah. Now, the one about whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has attended at the altar. Okay, how does he know the Messiah belongs to another tribe? Because we know what tribe the Messiah comes from. He's the son of David of the tribe of Judah. So the Messiah will come from the tribe of Judah. And no one under the Mosaic covenant from then forward, no one has ever attended at the altar from the tribe of Judah. Okay? So the one in Psalm 10 about whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has attended at the altar. It is perfectly well known that our Lord arose from out of Judah. Now, the reason we're inclined to want to think that he's talking about Jesus here is because he calls him our Lord, which we're so accustomed to hearing people speak of Jesus and about Jesus as our Lord that our mind immediately goes to But remember how Psalm 110 starts. Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is David referring to this one about whom Psalm 110 is speaking as my Lord. So if we know anything about what we're talking about, the my Lord of David is our Lord as well. And I think that's the sense in which Paul is referring to him as our Lord. That is the Messiah. Whoever he might end up being, he will be our Lord. Now, we know it's Jesus, but if in just reading Psalm 10, before Jesus is on the scene, we may not know the identity of this one, but whoever he is, he is our Lord. I think that's what he means here. It is perfectly well known that our Lord arose from out of Judah for the reasons that I just outlined because he has to be the son of David. That's who the Messiah is, and David belongs to the tribe of Judah. With reference to this tribe, Moses said nothing concerning priests, and this is also abundantly clear. It's abundantly clear that our Lord arose from the tribe of Judah, and it's also abundantly clear that Moses said nothing concerning priests coming from the tribe of Judah. If another priest, in accord with the likeness of Melchizedek, is to be raised up, He would not be such from a qualification that accords with the covenant with respect to his physical lineage. So in Psalm 10, if this dude comes along that Psalm 110 was talking about, it's clear that his priestly credentials are not going to derive from his physical lineage, not his physical lineage as he would be qualified under the Mosaic covenant. Okay, Rather... He would become such, he would become the priest that Psalm 110 is talking about in accord with the authority of an indestructible life. So he won't have any physical lineage that would qualify him to be a priest, but we have a promise, and look at the next sentence, for it is testified in Psalm 110, right? For it is testified in Psalm 110 that, quote, you are a priest unto the age 
I have the end of the age. It might be better unto the age. You are a priest unto the age according to the order of Melchizedek. Well, if this individual is going to serve and function as a priest unto the age, then he's got to be immortal. He's got to be someone who's not subject to death because he's going to last for as long as this world lasts and obviously beyond, but he only has in view as long as this world lasts here. So as long as this world lasts, he will be alive and well and able to function as this priest that Psalm 110 is promising. Okay, so this is part of Paul's explanation. Remember, he ended paragraph 34. Now, when the priesthood is changed, as a matter of course, there will also be a change of covenant. Why? Let me explain. It has to be a new covenant because under the other covenant, he couldn't function as a priest at all. Okay, very simple point. Again, questions on that paragraph. So is Paul explaining this to the Jews because they're expecting a king and not a priest? Because what? They're expecting a king as a Messiah and not a priest. And is Melchizedek used because he was both? Is that possibly? Well, that... I've always heard that the Jews were not expecting the Messiah to be like Jesus, but that he was going to come as a king and be a ruler. I think that may very well be true. As always, when we talk about what the Jews were expecting in those days, they were probably expecting 10 different things. Mm -hmm. I mean, it depends on which Jew you're talking about. A lot of the roles that we recognize were actually fulfilled in Jesus. They divided up among other various individuals, various eschatological people. So they were expecting a priest, and they're expecting a king. and, And I don't know the intricacies of their theology and their expectations, but I think it's highly likely that certainly some of them wouldn't have expected the Messiah to function, and maybe most of them would not have expected the Messiah to function as a priest. I think that's true. But just a reminder, the argument here is more narrowly focused than that. The issue is not, is Jesus the Messiah? The issue is, is Jesus the Messiah given that he got himself dead, that he got himself destroyed by the Romans? That's not what we expected from a Messiah. So Paul is making is painstakingly, and it's critical that you understand how painstaking his argument here. He's giving us this point and then this point that builds upon this point that builds upon this point that builds upon this point. He's bit by bit going to lead us down to an inference that it is completely within the realm of what we would have expected from the Messiah that he would die on the cross. And the way he's going to get there is there's this priest that he promised. A new priest involves a new covenant, and specifically a new covenant with respect to how the priest is going to function and what offering he's going to be offering. Jesus is this one. What do we find was in fact the offering that Jesus offered himself, his very own body? Well, that fits Psalm 110, Paul is going to argue, because somewhere along the line shortly, he's going to say, if you're going to be a high priest, you've got to offer an offering. Well, what offering was he going to offer? It wasn't animals. Teleosis was not attainable by animal offerings. So what offering was this new and different high priest going to be offering? Ah, himself, his own body he was going to offer. And that then becomes the basis upon which true mercy, true teleosis can be achieved, true mercy from God can be attained on the basis of the intercession 
of the true high priest who offered up himself on our behalf. And so therefore, implicitly then, therefore, don't look at his crucifixion and reject his Messiahship because he died. He was doing exactly what God had sent him to do and accomplish on our behalf that is the one absolutely necessary thing for us if we are going to ever receive mercy. So it shouldn't be a mark against you believing he's the Messiah. It should be a mark in favor of your accepting him as the Messiah. That's basically the outline of the argument that he's building. Jack, I'm having trouble understanding in verse 16 where it seems like he's saying that part of what qualifies him to be this priest is his immortality, the instructable life. I'm confused on that point, I think, because it would seem that if God is saying to this one, the Messiah, I swear, I'm not going to change my mind, I am determining you will function as this priest forever, and that that's part of this role I'm giving you, then it seems like his immortality would, in a sense, come with the job. That it's Mm -hmm. not that, hey, you're immortal, therefore you fit the bill for somebody who gets to be this priest, as if we're looking around for somebody who is immortal, and when we find him, we'll make that guy the priest forever. So could you help me understand what he means by the power of his indestructible life somehow qualifies him for this role? Well, maybe it's the particular way that I've translated it that's misleading. Maybe I shouldn't translate it qualified him. I think his idea is very simple, and that is if you're looking for some kind of indicator that somebody can serve the role under the Mosaic Covenant, were they of the tribe of Levi, there's your indication that they can serve in the role of priest under the Mosaic Covenant. What kind of indicator is going to indicate that they can serve as the high priest that Psalm 110 was talking about? Well, the only thing the psalm gives us is, well, he's going to like be indestructible. He's going to live forever. So I don't know. It's not Paul saying it qualifies him. That's my translation. And I can see how that can be misleading. So don't be faked out by that. I'm not sure how better to translate it, but it's somehow, it's his immortality that is going to be the sign, the attribute that goes with and is connected with and is correlated with him being that priest. I think that's all he's actually saying. Okay, thanks. Being brought up in a church where the Trinity was a big deal, I spent a lot of time just trying to sort out how everything fit together. Never was really able to do that but especially the separation between God and Christ, status, how they fit into the overall picture. Mm -hmm. And so after coming to Reformation and seeing the role of God in whatever level they were at, it never made sense that they were the same. Separation got bigger, if you understand what I... And so I've had a hard time, something as simple as, well, who do you pray to? Holding the bag. And I was just trying to... It seemed like... The, the more I understand about God, that his role is so much bigger and different than what Christ was, that I'm trying to figure out, well, Christ is important, so how does that all fit in? I don't know if that makes any sense to anybody else, but I mean, that's, I think what we're talking about here, you can really see how important that Christ is. Right. It's not a matter of um, one being higher and lower than the other one, it's just that they have entirely different roles, and you need to understand very clearly what each one of the roles is. Exactly. That well said. I think that's exactly right. I remember as a child my mother saying, 
things about how it, very important that in our doctrine and our theology we remain Christ-centered, our faith, our lives, that we remain Christ-centered. And that always stuck with me, but I never understood it. I never understood what that meant exactly, but it was always tucked in the back of my head. And I do recall early in my conscious Christian experience or, or my informed Christian experience when I was beginning to be a Bible teacher and that kind of thing, my understanding of Christianity was not Christocentric. Christ was not at the center of it. If anything, it was the Spirit of God that was at the center of it. Christ was just kind of the afterthought that God used to get things in place so he could really do what he wanted to do, namely, give us the power to live a victorious life. And that was through his Spirit, right? So he sent his Spirit to to work in us, to transform us, that I could be successful, that I could be powerful, that I could be this, that, and the other thing. Well, once Christ took care of my sins and got things started, what good is he? That honestly would have, I mean, I never said that, (laughs) but to be perfectly consistent, given the logic of my theology, why would I give Jesus any, great, he did a heroic and wonderful thing, that's great, but that's not where I'm at today. Where I'm at today is learning to walk by the Spirit and live in obedience to God and learn to live, to be loving by the Spirit of God, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. It's stuff like this that brings me to the point where I realize, no, Jesus is like at the center of the whole cotton-picking thing. Without him, it's nothing. Without him, there is no gospel. Without him, there is no salvation. Without him, there is no eternal life. I still need him. I wanted to comment on the way Colin worded his question. Your English translations are going to talk about you're a priest forever, right? What they've done is they've taken a phrase and they've substituted the English word forever there. It's common in the New Testament. They always do that. I don't think that's what he means. Jesus is not going to be a high priest forever because I think the day is going to come when we reach the age, the final age, the last age, the eternal age, where high priests will be out of a job. There will be no need for, no role for, no priestly function for the Messiah in the eternal kingdom of God. Why would there need to be? But right up until the end, when we enter into eternity, there will remain a function for a high priest. He's the one who, through his intercession, is going to determine whether you receive life or don't receive life if you haven't already received it. Why I said that is complicated. But there will be people that will need intercession right up until this heavens and earth is destroyed by fire, and God creates a new heavens and a new earth. There will still be individuals who need intercession. And the point that he's making here is Jesus is still going to be around then. He's not going away. As long as there is a world, this world, Jesus will be there to be able to serve and function as their intercessor when the time comes and when necessary. Now I don't remember why I'm saying that in response to you, but I lost it. I'm trying to sort it out. Oh, yeah. So all that's to say, so look how central he is right up to the very end. There is no salvation for anyone who is in need of salvation right up until the end. And it all hinges on Jesus and Jesus alone, on his choice, on his judgment, on his decision, on his mercy, on his love, on his willingness to, on his choice of me. So you can't get any more central than Jesus is to history and cosmic order. He's at the center of it. Now, is God a bigger deal? 
Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, God's a bigger deal. But he's such a big deal, he's not a big deal, right? He's not one of us being a big deal. He's above it all, big deal. Thanks, Jack. So the phrase that you said is represented by the word forever. Mm-hmm. Is that found in Psalm 110 or only in Hebrews? Psalm 110. Okay, thanks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the same phrase is used wherever you read till the end or the forever in these chapters. It's always the same phrase except once. And once it's an entirely different Greek word, and I think he means something different by it. It's at the completion, he says, that he will be alive at the completion. There, I think he's talking about my completion. And when is that? The day I die. On the day that I die... My destiny is set, basically. Well, I actually think he means at the completion of the present time, my destiny is finally set when Jesus makes the decision whether to raise me out of the grave or not and to meet him in the air. But that's at the completion of this present time where the first set of people who are going to take on immortality are going to take on immortality on that day, and we will join him in immortality. But who determines whether we will take on immortality, whether Jesus calls us out of the grave or not? It's his choice. It's his doing. You want to be right with Jesus is what it comes right down to. You don't want to be on the wrong side of Jesus. And I never would have said that and would have understood why I could say that a few decades ago. But he's just absolutely at the center of everything God is doing here. Pressing on. Okay, the next paragraph. Now, on the one hand, there occurs a setting aside of the former instruction on account of its weakness and uselessness, for the covenant made no one teleos. And on the other hand, there is the inauguration of a better hope in view of which we draw near to God. Okay, the setting aside of the former instruction. What's the former instruction? Well, the Mosaic covenant instructed you what to do in dealing with sin in your life. There's a certain series of offerings that you need to offer up in the temple, and you were instructed to do so. Well, that's set aside, he says. On the one hand, with the implications of the promise of Psalm 110, we set all that aside. No longer is that going to be the way we think about how my sin is dealt with. Why? Because of its weakness and uselessness. And then he tells us what he means by weak and useless. For the covenant made no one teleos. And I've already suggested that teleosis is the having attained the intended purpose of offerings of attaining mercy from God. So no one is in a position that they have attained mercy from God on the basis of the former instructions. Offer this lamb here in this way, take its blood, put all that kind of stuff. None of that stuff worked to make anybody teleos. So it was weak and useless if the issue was, will I receive mercy from God? On the other hand, with this promise, there's the inauguration of a better hope in view of which we draw near to God. Okay, what's this better hope? Hope, in, whenever the Bible uses it, is a confident expectation of something. Well, what's the content of our hope here? Well, my hope is that God will grant me mercy. God will not hold my sins against me. With the Messiah put in place as a high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, I now have the basis for a better hope. 
And what he means by better is basically a surer hope, a basis for confidence that I didn't have before. I might have had a hope before. Coming back to something that Ken was asking earlier, put yourself back in the position of the Mosaic Covenant, and you have a heart for God. You are open. You are receptive. You are contrite. You genuinely know that you're not worthy of God. And you take the lamb or whatever to the priest, and he takes its blood and does what he's supposed to do with it. And you walk away from there. You may actually have a hope, a, an expectation, a kind of confidence that God will grant you mercy. But in the back of your mind is, because of what I just did, <laughs> there's this nagging kind of sense that I don't think that that's not doing it. There's got to be some other way. You may have confidence in the mercy of God, but you don't have confidence in what you just did. Do the same thing every Saturday when you barbecue. Can you barbecue on a Saturday? Every Monday on a, when you barbecue. You do the same thing when you barbecue. Really? If I do that for God, that's going to get me mercy? That's all he wants from me? I don't think so. And so there has to be a big question mark, a big doubt about the basis for this mercy that you're looking for from God. It can't possibly be what I just did when I obeyed the terms of the Mosaic Covenant. And eventually, Paul's going to quote another psalm where David is basically saying, you don't want my animal sacrifices. And then parenthetically, he adds, a body you have prepared for me. It's got to be some other sacrifice. It's got to be something else. It can't be the bulls and goats that are prescribed by the law. So a true kind of savvy thinking worshiper in the Old Testament would see past the animal offerings and come to recognize there's got to be some other basis than what I've just been practicing here. You can still have confidence in God, but you don't have confidence in the intercession that has just been performed on your behalf. That's why what is inaugurated in Psalm 10 is a better hope. Because with this better hope, you can see that there's a substantial basis upon which you can have confidence that God will grant you mercy, something that you could never see under the Mosaic Covenant. So it's the same hope, better founded, better grounded, better based. And Psalm 110 establishes that better foundation for an expectation of mercy from God. So... Because we have that better hope, he says, we draw near to God in view of that. So you and me as we sit here, in view of what are we going before our creator, the author of our being, and expecting to receive mercy from him, even though I don't deserve it? On what basis do I expect that? Well, on the basis of Jesus. In view of that better hope that is provided through the priest according to the order of Melchizedek and what he's going to do on my behalf, on the basis of that better hope, I go before God expecting him to be merciful to me. I'm less eager, I'm less confident, I'm less able to go to God expecting him to be merciful because I gave him a pretty good lamb today. It's not the same thing. Indeed, he says, inasmuch as it was not without an oath, and then we have a parenthetical comment, And he finishes it at the end of sentence two, by just so much has Jesus become the guarantor of a better covenant. Okay, so inasmuch as it was not without an oath, insofar as that's the case, 
Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Okay, what does he mean, inasmuch as it was not without an oath? It's easy to misunderstand what Paul is saying here. Again, this is not some kind of principle that he's making, that priests who take an oath are better and more effective than priests who don't take an oath. That's not what he's saying. He's not even saying that the Levitical priests didn't take an oath. It has nothing to do with priests taking an oath. The oath that he's talking about was taken by God. Remember Psalm 110? I have sworn, this is God speaking, Yahweh speaking, Yahweh saying, I have sworn, there's the oath, I will not change my mind. You, the Messiah, are a priest forever in accord with the order of Melchizedek. That's what Paul's referring to. Inasmuch as his position as priest was given to him by Yahweh with an oath, and what was the gist of the oath? I have sworn and will not change my mind. You are a priest forever, or literally, unto the age, in accord with the order of Melchizedek. And that's the point he's going to make. What Levitical priest was ever put in place to serve until the age, until the end of time? None of them. They all died, and they had to be replaced by another priest. But not so the Messiah. The Messiah, the Lord has sworn, Yahweh has sworn, and will not change his mind. He's going to be functioning as that priest to the end of time. So notice where he goes from here. Those who have been made priests under the Mosaic Covenant are numerous on account of the fact that they are prevented by death from continuing. They die off, and you have to replace them. But he, on the other hand, has a permanent priesthood on account of his remaining unto the age. Therefore, he is indeed able to the final end, but I think it should be at the final end. And Kelly, this is the other phrase where it doesn't mean to the age. It just means at the completion. Therefore, he is indeed able at the end to save those who draw near to God with him in view, for he is always alive to make an appeal for mercy on their behalf. I'd probably change the text there. For he remains always alive to appeal for mercy on their behalf, unlike any Levitical priest. So you have some Levitical priest that you really, really like. He sings folk songs on his guitar instead of playing the organ, and you really, really like this Levitical priest, but, and you really think that he has the inside track with God, and if he can intercede, if anybody can intercede, he can intercede for you. And lo and behold, he dies, and he dies before you do. Well, when it comes crunch time, and when you need someone to intercede for you, he's in the grave. He's not there. So is that going to be the basis of my hope? Is that the intercessor that I want? Is that the intercessor that I need? No, the intercessor I need is the one that Psalm 110 was talking about, the one who's always going to remain alive and there able and willing to intercede for me. Now, I skipped over that parenthetical part there. Now, when they became priests, the Levitical priests, they were priests without an oath, not, and again, not that they didn't take an oath. Yahweh had never promised immortality to any of them. Now, when they became priests, they were priests without the oath. We could even translate that, the oath. But in line with the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind, you are a priest unto the age, he became a priest with an oath or by way of the oath. And it's the oath of permanence, 
the oath of immortality. Questions on anything in that paragraph? Um, forgive me for reading ahead, but he's able to save forever those who draw near through him. Is he talking about these people in the other column in my Bible where he's reading the covenant, Jeremiah's new covenant? Uh, what verse are you reading? 25. Okay. Because he goes on in the covenant mentioned in Jeremiah, he says, I will be merciful to their iniquities, meaning they will have iniquities. And these are the people of the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Okay, so what's your question again? Well, if he is going to be merciful to their iniquities and remember their sins no more, it means that these people whom he's made this covenant with in the house of Israel and the house of Judah will need someone to intercede for them on their right. behalf so that God will be merciful to their iniquities right. and remember their sin no more. So is that where he's taking us? Yeah, exactly. Very Jewish. Yes, oh yeah. No, absolutely. But it's not uniquely Jewish. Okay. Because universally, he's going to save mankind through the high priesthood of Jesus. Because that's true of every human being, it's true of the house of Israel and the house of Judah as well. And so we need to talk about exactly what the new covenant is. But the new covenant basically is the replacing of the animal offerings in the Mosaic covenant with the high priesthood and offering of Jesus in their place. That's what I'm going to argue the new covenant is. And we have an age of the Gentiles. Will there be a place of the Gentiles during that time? During which time? The age unto the age. The one that Jeremiah passage is talking about, the millennial age. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think the rest of the world will be the place of the Gentiles because the kingdom is going to be established in the land, in the land that was promised Abraham thousands of years ago, reshaped by earthquakes and whatnot. Okay, let me finish up here. Now, such a high priest, when indeed he is, you know what, let's save this till next week. I don't think I can do it justice, so we'll finish this next week and press on.